Okay, next up, we have Kat Lewis, who's a writer and workshop facilitator from London. Her collaborating, collaborative spoken word poetry has been performed at Rich Mix. The opening to her forthcoming novel was shortlisted for the 2011 Pat Cavana Prize, and she's a PhD candidate at Goldsmiths with an interest in the unsaid. Please welcome to the stage, Kat Lewis. person to read from this book, which I think is excellent value for money. I also want to say thank you to Richard Skinner for putting a book in my hands, because uh, last time I read this, it was from a Skybit paper. So this is called Missing It, and I'm a really strong believer in not giving away any kind of plot details and like letting the reader know, but I do feel the need to let you know that this is the voice of a man. So here we go. Buddy's lost. London's lack of foliage has screwed with his senses. Fucking Boris Johnson and his bicycles. We need trees to breathe, mate, to sprinkle a piss trail home. I'd never noticed there aren't any trees on our street. Would a scent stick to lampposts as well as a tree? Surely the rain must run urine off. We get enough of it. Every day it's bloody raining. If I had a sneaky slash, maybe it replaced what was lost away with something familiar. I can just imagine Buddy now, snuffling the streets, inhaling the dust and cigarette bus. He might be lucky and stumble across a chicken bone tossed out of a box marked Tasty. That black nose was always nosy, nosing into an ear hole or between toes, slimy. He used to watch us having sex. He once rolled a tennis ball into Gemma's cheek. That made us laugh. We shook together, still tangled up as his tail beat against the side of the mattress. His whole body swaggers when he wags his tail, and that's his smile. I realized that yesterday when I was looking for a photo. They're all blurry except the ones where Gemma's holding him. No need to send a search party for her. She's long gone beyond the lamppost here now. I'll put one of Buddy's posters up in the corner shop. People are always staring at ads here. The corner shop guy says, hello. I'm here most Friday nights with a, for a few cheeky after-hours cans and a packet of fags. When the leaves were yellow, we'd roll in here nights, giggling. Then I'd be back most Saturday mornings buying cans of Coke, diet for Gemma, to cancel out the booze. Not today. I might buy some cigarettes now. Fuck Gemma and her only when we're drinking rule. Lots of people will see Buddy's poster in here. Once their eyes roam from the daily headlines to his dopey face, they won't be able to resist reading it. Elections coming up. Conservatives claim last-minute poll lead. Might as well have just stayed. <laughs> Nobody stands a chance against that fatty on a bike. We Brits love a laugh. Now they're up, these posters seem, don't seem like enough. Yesterday at work, eight felt like a good number, but now it looks pathetic, even wrapped in red duct tape. I need more, but the printer was Gemma's. Maybe the pub will run some off for me. They're always nice in there. The girls like Buddy. They coo when he comes lolloping in. I've never noticed how fit these barmaids are. Never looked at their faces before. I bet they have a lot of fun. They're having fun now. Sober on a Saturday afternoon as they prance around together with empty glasses hanging off their fingers. I wonder what they get up to when all us Muppets leave. I've danced on bars before, woken up at strangers' houses. Gemma slowed life down a lot. 
Maybe I'll take a seat and have a pint now. No, must find the dog. I should really spread the word with my new search with these posters. I don't know this road, so Buddy won't either. Maybe I'll find him down here just pottering around. Our house was a compromise, a halfway point between each of our commutes. Gemma picked it. I knew her choice would be fine, and it was. Everything we needed. There's even a garden, like she knew Buddy was coming. He loves the garden in the summertime. I swear he likes the flowers, the ponds. When we first got Buddy, he was a hit with barbecues before he was allowed to go to the park, wobbling around, covered in puppy blubber, delighting the guests, like Gemma meeting my friends for the first time. There are steps down to the street from our front door. I wonder which way he turned when he went. Buddy only knows the way to the park and back. That's the only route he takes, like me and my march to the tube. On Monday mornings, I take the Piccadilly line to sit at my desk at one of those glass-fronted tower blocks. I'm a headhunter. It's exactly like it sounds when you think about it, hunting for heads to pull from one job and shove into another, making a hole for yet another one to fill. Not hunter, really, more like a joker, irritating the balance in all those other glass-fronted tower blocks. I'm almost as bad as an estate agent. It was only supposed to be a year or two. I was going to take the money around the world. Then there was Gemma. She always stopped the house from smelling like dog. When I walked through the door, it was always vanilla. That day Buddy left, I was home. I'd pulled a sickie. How it happened is a muddle to me. One minute he was there. I remember clearly ushering him from under my feet. The next he was gone. All the minutes between those two blur. He wouldn't fit under a car, but I'll look anyway, just in case. My phone vibrates. It's a text from Simon. Come for dinner tonight. Another bloody dinner. I can't remember the last time. I just went for a pint with the boys. The dog could come too if I could find the bugger. There's the polling station on a street. A church on whatever bloody road this is. I should remember this for when I find the pole car. It's got to be somewhere. Churches remind me of being a kid. Birthday parties and nativity shows. I was going to be Crocodile Dundee or a film director. Back then I still could have been. Now I'm any prat in a suit. Those were the days when church meant possibility, not weddings. They were the golden times when you didn't have to think for yourself and sort through shit. Shit. Maybe that pile right there is Buddy's. Is it still warm? I could hover my hand over it to check. I want to smell it, but that probably wouldn't help. I never picked up his crap. I'd spot him crouching and distance myself, pretending he didn't belong to me. I could step in this now, squelch right into it, and walk through the house with souls full of shit. That'd work with the interior, blend with the beige sofa and off-white walls. Now it's a bachelor pad, just me and Buddy, man and dog. Feces footsteps would be a nice masculine touch. When Gemma left, I fought to keep the dog, even though she loved it more. I wanted to take something of hers and hold it hostage. She's still left. She's not coming back. And now he's gone too. My phone vibrates again and again and again. It's a call from a number I don't know. I've got your dog, the stranger says. He even gives direction to his house on a road parallel to mine. Sorted. I wonder where Gemma is now. On another day like this, we'd eat a fry up in bed and she'd shout as I spill baked beans juice on the duvet. Then maybe we'd meet our friends in the pub and she'd moan about me watching football on the screens above her head. 
Who's listening to her now? The stranger who called turns out to be an old man. He tells me the tale of capturing the dog as he opens the kitchen door and Buddy bursts out, tumbling towards me. Hey, Buddy! I don't say this out loud. I don't want to look like a twat. He barks up at me and his paws slip on the laminate floor. Scruffing his collar, I realize I don't have a lead, but the stranger slings rope in my hand as he ushers us out. Gemma would tell me to put a thank you card through his letterbox. It's a nice thought, but I'm rubbish at stuff like that. I feel pretty good now. In fact, I feel great, masterly. Walkies, buddy? How about that? I think we both deserve a treat. Park then pint, perhaps. I missed the match for you, mate. Let's stop for a minute outside Dixon's to check the score, blinking out their window. More news. There's David, Ed, and Nick. A three-way round of paper scissors would have sorted this out. I say park, it's really green. I suppose a square of London grass. Is that your friend over there, the fluffy white one? I hope it's not the one you Gemma said you like to hump. Fuck, it might be. Don't charge off, come back. Bloody dog never came to me. Everyone loves Gemma. Of course she met someone else who couldn't resist her creamy curls. Schmuck. He'll see. She won't be able to hide her mess behind those for long. It's just a squirrel you're squirreling towards. I'll catch him at the bottom of that tree. Come on, buddy, I'd forgotten what a loose cannon you are. Probably best to fetch a lead from home before we move on. Gemma would cackle if she could see us now. The old man's rope doesn't match your flashy tartan corner. Chomping at air and dribbling as he goes, Buddy storms straight past our house, choking himself on the rope. This is ours. Come on. A ball of split flies out his hat, his mouth, as he swivels around, and I direct him through the door. He rushes into the hallway, sniffing the skirting board, up one or two stairs, then skirtling back. Dumb dog. When his nose nudges the living room door, he leans backwards in surprise before wandering in. Then he returns to me, tail down, the whites of his eyes showing as he scans the walls. There's something not right about this. A final cardboard box of odds and sods still waits in the hallway for Gemma or the bin man, whoever comes first. A silver frame glints at the top. Gemma and Buddy laughing at me. I took it on that weekend, not long before she smacked me with the big goodbye. Don't pick it up. I won't. I'll just have a look. Everything's changed. In fact, Buddy, the creature coincidentally sweeps past and I grab its snout, sits shockingly still as I examine the crumpled face in my hand next to the picture. Even through the folded slaps, I can see it now. This is not the right dog. Thank you, Kat. Okay, next we welcome to the stage Kevin McNeil, who was born and raised in the Outer Hebrides. He's won numerous literary awards, performed internationally and taught creative writing at prestigious universities such as Edinburgh and Uppsala. His new book is a novel entitled The Brilliant and Forever and features a talking alpaca as one of its main characters. McNeil is also a poet, a screenwriter, an editor and a lyricist. Please welcome to the stage Kevin McNeil. Thanks very much for that wonderful welcome, and thank you, Brixton. It's a long, long time, years, 
since I read in London, although I live here now, but I've never read in Brixton before, so it's a bit of a privilege for me to be here with you tonight. I'm just going to begin with a very quick reading from a novel I wrote called A Method Actor's Guide to Jekyll and Hyde, uh, which was my response to Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I'm in two minds. Yeah, there's another 60 or 70,000 words after that, but I've only got five minutes. And I've got three books to get through. So come on, we'll keep the pace up. Um, it's easy to read quickly from this book. This is a book I wrote called Be Wise, Be Otherwise. And it's a collection of aphorisms. Uh, wise, stupid, smart-ass, tongue-in-cheek, is he been serious or is he not been serious, little phrases that I came up with. The subtitle for the book is Ideas and Advice for Your Kind of Person. And this is the kind of, uh, this is the kind of thing I wrote. When someone inadvertently makes a quip and says, no pun intended, look them straight in the eye and say with a grimace, that's all right. None achieved. <laughs> there are so many people in the world that the chances of someone breathing in unison with you right now are very high indeed. Feel synchronized. Dial a random phone number and quote from this book. You can take a seahorse to water. <laughs> Keep Britain tiny. All right, the alpaca in the room. Um, this is the advance review copies uh, of my next novel, which I'm very excited about. It comes out in March. So um, the all singing, all dancing, full cover, full color version will be out uh, in just two or three months' time. It's really hard, even in a longer than whatever two minutes I've got left, to do a reading from this novel because it's, it, it exists in a kind of parallel world. The novel is a kind of cross between tonight the X Factor, and a rock festival. So what I mean by that is it, it all hinges around a writing competition. And the novel is set on an island where everybody, as well as having a whatever day job, is also a writer. So when people meet each other, they don't say, how are you? They say, so what are you working on at the moment? Everybody's a writer. Um, oh, yeah, and alpacas can talk. And there are no... Of course, I mean, I thought about writing a novel with talking sheep, but nobody would believe that, right? So it had to be, well, I met a talking alpaca, so I knew that was how it had to happen. Um, and it all builds up to this one day where, like tonight, one writer after another comes up on the stage. So there's kind of a short story collection within the novel, and there's a prize for the winner, 
and there's a really, really bad outcome for the person who has voted the least successful writer. So it's a competition. Um, but one of the themes and one of the things that intrigues me about evenings such as this is that whether you know a person or think you know a person well or not, when they give you the privilege of seeing, seeing into their mind by sharing with you, for example, a song they wrote or a piece of creative writing, it makes you see something about them that you might not have realized or expected. And I have this theory that everybody, human and alpaca alike, has a far more interesting inner life than most people realize. So throughout the novel, there's a lot of humor. It's quite offbeat. But I wrote all these different stories for all these different characters. And it's about the interplay of, oh, I didn't think that character would come up with that story. But I don't have time to read any of that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a serious paragraph from a not very serious book. And in that way, it might seem inappropriate because it's, it's, it's quite serious. But on the other hand, I think it's, it's very appropriate because it's about the whys and the wherefores of making marks on that blank page, as everybody tonight who's performed for you does. And I'm sure many of you out there write stories and songs of your own as well. So this is slightly more philosophical, just a single paragraph towards the end of the book. Um, and it's about why we do, or why I think we do what we do. I think the blank page terrifies us, being the visual counterpart to silence. The blank page is an iced over graveyard, the absolute zero of all contact and warmth. The blank page denies us the comfort of meaning. The blank page is the unknown, hinting that it is unknown because it's unknowable. The blank page makes that which we do seem to know petty and inconsequential. The blank page renders us painfully vulnerable. The blank page is the rejection of every story ever told. Thus, it is a glowing invitation, a challenge offered to the depths of who we think we are, a provocation to that part of us where creativity meets experience. The blank page says to us, show me the essence, show me what matters and why it matters. The blank page is a beginningless void. The blank page compels us to explore our imagination, those diverse, unique places we might share with others. The blank page entreats us to prove we have been alive. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kevin. Um, next, we welcome to the stage Matthew Redford, who was born in 1980 and grew up on a council estate in Bermondsey, southeast London. He lives in Longfield, Kent, and to counterbalance the quirkiness of his crime fiction, Redford is an accountant. His debut novel, Addicted to Death, a food-related crime investigation, was published by Clink Street Publishing, 
Please welcome to the stage, Matthew Redford. Good evening, everybody, and from talking alpacas to talking food items, let me invite you to a world where we have homo sapiens and food sapiens. Food sapiens, genetically modified food items which walk, talk, and pay their taxes. We find with genetically modified food items that actually they tend to be above average intelligence, with the exception of the aubergine, which I'm afraid remains bland. <laughs> we pick up the story with Detective Inspector Willie Wartle, who is a carrot, investigating the savage beating of two eggs beaten to death by a fedora-wearing assailant brandishing a large metal spoon. If I can find the page, that would be a good start. Dorothy finished stretching and flicked at some notes she'd scribbled on her pad. Dr. Wilkinson's taken the bodies back to the mortuary, although he said that the autopsy is going to be delayed because he needs to put the eggshells back together. And to quote, he's no jigsaw fan. We need formal identification, but we're pretty sure the deceased, the married, and a Benedict and Darcy Blacktown. Wartle pulled a plastic cup from the water machine container and filled it as Dorothy brought him up to date with case developments. He sipped at the water and contemplated what he heard. Okay, he said. I'm not too worried about the formal ID. It's fairly unlikely that two random eggs were visiting Beaconbourne Avenue at the same time that Benedict and Darcy Blacktail have apparently disappeared. No, they're our victims. What else do we know? Not too much, replied Dorothy. Neighbours say she was a home economics teacher at the local comprehensive, and he was something to do with food science technology. They were quiet, kept themselves to themselves, and there were some mutterings from local neighbours about food sapiens. But something else, uh, something out of the ordinary doesn't appear to have happened. Do we know what's meant by food science technology, asked Wartle. Is it connected to Astra Arms? Yes, that's the one. We've got officers down there now to see what we can find out. We'll get into his office and do the usual checks. Dorothy smiled at her boss, meaning, uh, knowing that he meant no harm. Their career paths have collided just over five years earlier when the food-related crime division was established. They forged an excellent working relationship, despite Wartle being a carrot and Dorothy a fully formed human. Dorothy Knox was an experienced policewoman who was approaching the latter stages of her career when Chief Superintendent Archibald summonsed her into his office one cold November evening. Thinking that she was about to find herself into an earlier than planned retirement, Dorothy was pleasantly surprised when he asked if she would be prepared to work alongside an up-and-coming young detective who had a tricky case of the crabs. When a number of victims started to fall foul of infected crab meat, the case soon became high profile as the public demanded answers as to how the contagion, contagion was going to be prevented. Wartle found Dorothy's experience invaluable as together they unmasked Sammy the Shrimp, a small-time psychopath hell-bent on destroying the hard-earned reputation of the crab. It was the week before Christmas when Wartle and Dorothy tracked down Sammy the Shrimp to a squalid flat on the high street above the local betting shop. Sammy, seeing the two officers arrive with an arrest warrant, attempted to flee by pushing a small child to the floor, grabbing their scooter and using his long, narrow, muscular tail to pick up speed on the improvised getaway vehicle. Wartle and Dorothy gave chase, but just when it seemed that Sammy the Shrimp had managed to evade capture, his getaway scooter skidded on a patch of black ice, sending him dangerously out of control, jackknifing the vehicle and flying through the air towards the shop window of Bamboo Can Do, 
the number one store for ob uh, bamboo-related objadiates. The unfortunate impaling of Sammy the Shrimp saw the end of the great crab meat infection, with most victims recovering following a dose of salt and an application of soothing cream. Water was not comfortable being thrust into the spotlight, but the media latched on to the food sapiens detective, and he soon found himself an unwilling celebrity. The successful resolution of the great crab infection case saw the resources offered to the division soar from diddly squat to austere. However, being the new media darling was of no help to Water and Dorothy during their confrontation with their soon-to-be nemesis, Mad Cow McBeef, a confrontation that very nearly cost them their lives. The powwow with Mad Cow, as nicknamed by the press, was a titanic bloodbath of struggle with multiple victims strewn across the food and homo sapiens population. The eventual capture of Mad Cow McBeef on a farm grazing happily next to the bloodied body of his former owner, Old MacDonald, made the front page news with the trial at the Old Bailey covered daily by the rolling television news channels. Despite Wartell's best endeavours, the jury accepted Mad Cow McBeef's insanity plea and he was sentenced to life detention at the Farmer Giles Mental Institution. Addicted to death, available at the back and also on Amazon. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Drag Kit Fraser away from the bar. I'm going to welcome him to the stage. Kit will read from the third book of his Happiness Trilogy. Number one is The Joy of Talk. Number two, Old Age, My Three Best Friends, Alcohol, Television and God. And number three, How to Be Happy, in brackets, Not Easy. Kit founded three single-issue parties and fought three elections. The Publican Party, Fighting the Smoking Ban, the Joy of Talk Party, Fighting Urban Loneliness, and the Self-Explanatory Ban Bankers Bonus Party. Please welcome Kit Fraser to the stage. Uh, hello, thank you very much. Uh, now, I've got a bit to get through, and I've got to do it in double quick time. Very, very important stuff I've got to tell you. Uh, I mean, in this book, How to Be Happy, Not Easy, <clears throat> I've used a story, I've used a whole variety of stories, one story, this woman called Etty, who was a depressive. Uh, in the Second World War, she was a Jew in Holland. She knew she was gonna get rounded up, and she was gonna use her last weeks, months, or possibly years, as profitably as possible. And this girl was just 22. Now, death concentrates the mind wonderfully. That's really the theme. Uh, now, I just want to, in two years, she actually lasted two years, and she then went to the concentration camp, and she was, she was killed. At the end of the two years, so at the start of the two years, she was a normal 22-year-old woman with depression problems. At the end, she said, the misery, when she was in the concentration camp, she said, the misery here is quite terrible, and yet I often walk with a spring in my step along the barbed wire, and then time and again, it soars straight from my heart, and I can't help it, that's just the way that it is, like some elementary force, the, flee the feeling that life is glorious and magnificent. And she also writes, and this is all in the book, I I've nicked it from her book, uh, these two months behind barbed wire have been the richest and most intense of my life. Uh, well, I was, I was amazed, right? And so I went through a book, and she has 12 commandments. I thought, 
she has got the secret of happiness. And I'm very interested, uh, latterly, in happiness because I'm 61 and the next thing, I'm running out of time, you know. De death is the next thing that's going to happen. You know, I've done all the worldly stuff. So I'm, um, I'm beginning to think about the spirit, which only makes sense when you're old, when you might die. Uh, and her, these are her 12 tips. One, change. You have to change yourself. Two, be sober. Three, cease. Cease living an accidental life. Four, work on yourself. Five, attitude. She writes, what distinguished each one of us was only our inner attitudes. When she was in the concentration camp, she looked around and she was happy. Just about everybody else was miserable. They hadn't prepared for their eventuality. They all knew what was going to happen. She'd used her two years profitably. Uh, six, prepare. Ill-preparedness was the greatest cause of suffering she saw in the concentration camp. Her seventh tip was listen. Listen honestly to your inner voice. I'm not going to expand on all these things. You know exactly what she's saying. Eight, articulate. Uh, Verbalise, vocalise, visualise. You know, how many times you have thoughts to, and you don't, it takes energy to turn the thoughts into words, and you think, oh, Christ, I'm not very good at talking, oh, fuck it, that's roughly what I think, and don't articulate it. She says, you've got to articulate. Uh, nine, do. Uh, practice, just don't preach. You know, we all have our little resolutions, and we think, oh, that's what we'll do, and of course we don't do it, because it's kind of difficult to do or, or awkward. Ten, seek. Seek the goodness in other people, uh, you know, rather than gossip about what's terrible about them. I don't know. Uh, that's what she says. Eleven, balance. Balance the inner, your inner self with your outer self. So like uh, writers, a lot of writers here, the danger for writers is they're hugely developed inwardly and the danger is you prefer, you know, the desert to the marketplace. That, uh, you know, you've got to, it's got to be external as well as internal. That's what she says. And the twelfth, the twelfth thing she said, none of this works unless you pray. So I've got to an age where I've got to seriously consider this, all this. So I wrote this book, How to Be Happy, Not Easy. I mean, I've had good times. I'm just a normal person, right? And, and I've had good times in my 60 years. But I just want to be, I've got time now, and I'm going to focus on being happy. So I wrote this book. I wrote this book. And by the time I got to the end of the book, I was still unhappy. Well, <laughs> well, not unhappy, but you know, not like this woman, Etty, who did it in two years. And then, do you know what I did? i tell you what this book was. It's not really my book. I read 30, 40 books, great philosophers, great men, philosophers, theologians, um, uh, uh, spiritual gurus, Profound people, you know, Nelson Mandela, a fellow called Jean Vanier, two or three popes, amazing people, right? And uh, so, I, and I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to say this, this is embarrassing. 
Okay, I'm going to say something embarrassing and do it quickly, and we move on quickly to a little one-page reading, so I'm not going to keep you long. So I'm going to say something very embarrassing. Right? So I read these 40 books. You know, I am 61. You know, I don't want to stumble into death. I do not want to be ill-prepared. I want to be like Etty. I want to die happy. I want to go, I've cracked it. It is crackable. Some people think happiness doesn't exist. Totally disagree because of all my reading. Now, the beauty of this book is you don't have to read the 40 books. <laughs> you know, it's a bit of a, <clears throat> you've got to wade through it slightly. Don't have to do it. I've done it all for you. And this is the embarrassing bit. I, I have, in that book is, is a proof of the existence of God to a reasonable man who is open-minded. It's in the book. You're so lucky. Just read the book. It's not me saying it. It's me condensing all these brilliant people. And the second thing is, it's pointless if God exists if you don't talk to him. The way to talk isn't what Etty says at the end is praying. Now, this is not a religious brilliant thing here, right? Praying is useless unless you do it properly. And in the book... It's all there. I'm not a religious zealot and all that. I've been taken by surprise, let me tell you. Would you buy it? Did you say you'd buy it? Hi-fi or I'd buy it? Oh, he prays. I know, I said praying is useless unless you do it properly. Good on you. Now, uh, this is a book about happiness. Money can't buy you happiness. Anybody who wants this book... Uh, can't actually have it at the moment because it's not being produced by the publishers yet because uh, of delays. But you just text me. I will send the book through the post to you. Text kithootnanny at gmail.com. Right, I'm now just going to read. This is my writing style, and then I'll get off. Okay, so imagine. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a bit about old age, right? Old age can tip... Uh, old people can tip over the edge. They can get wiped off the map of regular human contact. That is why community is so important for them. And if it is not made obviously available, you just have to carve out your own personal territory. You've got to make your own daily round, like a visit to the pub at such and such a time for one and a half drinks and a knocking on the door of some other old bugger who hasn't seen a human himself for a couple of days except on the TV. You need to be as pushy as a salesman. If the world won't come to you, you've got to go to it. In this big, empty universe, you have to fend for yourself. Otherwise, you'll sink beneath the waters of other people's complete indifference and drown in a sea of your own loneliness and despair. No, this is not going to happen to me. You need to say for yourself, I'm going to make a success of the last third of my life. I have done youth, and I scored 62%. Middle age fouled up at the end, and I lost some valuable percentage points. I want to end on a high. Most people tail off and ruin their overall life score. So this is where I'm going to jolly well major, surprise the world with a high score. Oh, yes. I strongly recommend spending disproportionate money on clothes, so when you step out of a day in search of human contact, people will look at you and say, he looks dapper. What do you mean they're not my words? 
So this is my book. This is a previous book. Sorry, this is a previous book. Uh, he looks dapper. Here is a man who turns himself out well, kitted out in good cloth with a little flourish like a buttonhole and maybe a trilby on the nut. Anyway, that's my style of writing. So that's my little sales pitch. Okay. Thank you very much, Kit Fraser. Thank you. Okay, I think next we're going to do the raffle. Uh, I believe we've raised over 50 quid for Brixton Soup Kitchen. So. Let's get the first one. Dig deep, eh? Dig deep. There we go. Okay, here we go. Number 86. Yes? <laughs> okay, we'll do, another, do the second one anyway. Number 57. Hey! Just check, yeah, just check. There is no 86 in the room, yeah? No? Yeah. Yep, we're going to go again then. Number 86, you've missed the boat. Number 72. Yes! Fantastic. Okay, hope you've all had a great time. Oh, we've got another competition. My God. <laughs> okay, nobody got all 12 questions right, but two people or three people were very knowledgeable. Sharon Tynan and Becca and Theo won a copy of the book each. And then we had three people who each got 10 questions right. So I need someone from the audience to come and pick one of these three entries oh, the other two. to come and decide who. One of those three. Who is it? results, I mean the actual song titles, is there anyone who wants to know what 
you want me to run through There's them? train spotters in the audience. Train spotters. Yeah, you haven't got the phone. Okay, so everyone, I think that he hasn't got the phone. Okay, well, you step.